What will the energy transition actually look like? Whether it's fueled by hydrogen, sustainable energy, oil and gas majors, or innovations we're yet to see in the field. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. If you like this show, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. Kelsey Warner and I are here at the Abu Dhabi National Exhibition Center for the World Future Energy Summit, part of Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week. Hi, Kelsey. Hey, Mustafa. So we are witnessing, you know, a, a, sort of the moving on of the discussion and very much the reality of the energy transition at the moment. Absolutely. So I think what we're surrounded by here today is solutions and the conversation is around the last 10 to 20 percent. This hard to abate the industrial scale, future of transport, future of food security. What are these things that still need to be solved so that we can move on? Um, but I think the mood here is, you know, renewables are really strong. They're on a forward foot. And so how do we get the marketplace to evolve and adapt and get a buyer side story on this. So you can you may be able to hear some of the ambiance uh, you know of uh, the exhibition halls where at the national stand um, you, you can almost say that is the sound of the willingness um, of the industry um, you know and beyond to get behind the energy transition um, we've seen uh, you know mobility here um, discussions about resources like water um, as you were saying about about hydrogen and other innovations but but in general um, you know we're seeing a direction that by the 2030s we hope it will become you know, very much uh, successful when it comes to some of the targets, whether it's reducing emissions, climate or otherwise, that we're hoping to meet. The paths to net zero do exist. It's now choosing the one that we want to take. And it's a high stakes maneuver that needs to be adapted and we need to execute quickly. And so to get a sense of the reality on the ground from hydrogen to nuclear to uh, pricing trends, I spoke to regular national contributor Robin Mills, and here that is. Robin, I want to start by talking about the attacks on Abu Dhabi on Monday morning. Two drone strikes at the construction site of a new terminal at Abu Dhabi airport and on an Adnoc fuel depot in the industrial area of Musafa, which struck three fuel trucks. This was reportedly carried out by Yemen's Houthi militia. Three Adnoc employees were killed and six injured in Musafa, and Adnoc tweeted late last night that it had enacted a business continuity plan to ensure no disruption to delivery of supply. This is reminding me, honestly, of the last major story we were tracking before the pandemic took hold in 2019 and 2020, the rash of attacks on oil tankers in the Arabian Gulf by the same group. So what are your thoughts on this developing story and its impact on the energy industry? Yes, well, obviously, firstly, I'd like to express condolences to you know, those who, who were killed and injured in the attack and, and their families. Obviously, it's uh, you know, worrying and, and frightening development. In terms of, you know, as you say, this is not the first direct attack on, on energy infrastructure. We've, over the course of the, the conflict in Yemen, there have been you know, numerous attacks on, on infrastructure, primarily in Saudi Arabia, uh, pipelines and, and, uh, and oil storage uh, facilities and so on. And most dramatically, of course, the attacks on the Abqaiq uh, uh, oil, oil and gas processing facility, which, which knocked out a large part of Saudi uh, production capacity briefly. Um, there hasn't been anything remotely on that scale in the UAE. And, uh, um, this is, I guess, uh, as far as I'm aware, the first kind of direct attack on UAE energy infrastructure on, onshore. As you say, there have been a number of attacks on, on tankers um, in, in the Gulf and, uh, and the, the Arabian Sea. Um, 
not most of those it was not not very clear who was behind them of course it's suspected in some way linked to the the conflict in in Yemen but uh, you know generally not never never kind of clearly established um and those attacks were carried out in various ways you know, mines or bombs attached to vessels and so on no serious uh, disruption to energy supplies fr- from this you know the, the all storage facilities that, that were attacked here here in Abu Dhabi you know related to, to the airport not uh, directly causing significant interruptions to, to operations um, and certainly not not affecting the UAE's energy uh, exports in any way. But it is, of course, a reminder, you know, of the need to have robust plans and and defences and and uh, and the ability to recover from such attacks quickly. And and uh, you know, you mentioned Adnoc's business continuity plan. Adnoc has a number of plans, of course, for ensuring its oil supplies continue to be uh, freely available. Adnoc, of course, is constructing a very large underground oil storage facility at, at Fajero, which is, of course, on the Indian Ocean coast. So that provides another export point, which isn't dependent on the uh, on using the the Gulf or the Strait of Hormuz, uh, and that facility being underground, of course, is more protected against uh, against any possible attacks. Um, so this is giving more um, redundancy and and more resilience to the UAE's oil exports. So you know, so no, no serious consequences in terms of oil exports from, from this attack, but it is a you know, another warning and a, another reminder of the need for that uh, that vigilance and uh, the alternative backup systems. Thank you for your thoughts on that. I want to shift gears to Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week in the World Future Energy Summit, where we're focusing now this week on the transition to clean energy. The pandemic has slowed progress of the energy transition, setting us back in our fight against climate change. Can you provide an update on the shape of recovery and return to progress on this front? Yeah, so I think the pandemic, of course, particularly in 2020, caused an enormous slump in energy demand and particularly in oil demand because People weren't moving around, of course, flights were very heavily interrupted. People were in work at home and, and lockdowns and so on. Now, most of that has now recovered. I'd say we're actually pretty much back to pre-pandemic levels of, of oil demand. And, and, and we are at pre-pandemic levels of, of, let's say, transport, with the exception of air travel. That still has not fully recovered, and particularly international air travel. But, uh, but otherwise, we're pretty much back to the pre-pandemic levels. I think this is something of a surprise to people. There was a lot of thought early in the pandemic that this was going to radically change things, that oil demand would never uh, would never recover to the levels of 2019. Um, in fact, it has bounced back very quickly. And this is a good thing for the world economy and for and the recovery from the pandemic, but it is a problematic thing for the, for the climate. We are seeing a big stimulus packages, very heavy spending, government spending to encourage recovery in the US uh, in particular, but also in Europe, um, you know, China and, and elsewhere. And we are seeing very strong rebounds in energy demand, and, and that is being met by, to some extent, by, by more renewables, but to, unfortunately, a large extent by fossil fuels, and particularly by, if we look at China, particularly by coal, we are seeing a severe squeeze because of all this on energy supplies, for, on, on gas, supplies of gas, coal, oil, electricity, um, and we're seeing record record prices, for, the, for uh, so particularly for gas and electricity in, in Europe and, and elsewhere. So, you know, when governments are running short of energy, when people and businesses are running short of energy, unfortunately, the, the low carbon ambitions get get uh, get put to one side and, uh, and p- people will, uh, at least in the short term, will, will turn back to dirty energy and, and particularly the coal. And that, that, that is a big problem. We are speaking at a time when oil has hit a seven year high. And so in this price environment, is that in any way, can that be in any way good news for renewables? I know cost competitiveness, I think you're about to probably touch on this, is a hurdle to scaling renewable projects. It's not necessarily true for solar anymore, where it's very cheap, but for hydrogen or maybe other alternative fuels to find a foothold. What do you think about the price outlook for oil and newer entrants in this energy mix? Yeah, well, 
renewable energy has become extremely cost competitive. That is very good news. Solar power is extremely cheap. Prices have gone up a little bit because of, of supply chain issues and so on, but, but still, uh, that'll probably be overcome in the near future. So solar power and wind power will continue getting cheaper. There was a big wind power auction for sites in the UK yesterday. Uh, enormous interest, very large bids, very competitive. So offshore wind power in the UK really doing tremendously well. In the longer term, this is, all, this is good. This is all going to be replacing the use of, um, of fossil fuels. It's going to get us through this, this energy crisis in the longer term. The, the short term is, is still a squeeze, is still a concern. You mentioned oil. Um, oil prices have now, now rebounded very substantially. And it's a sign of, of the problem. And the problem being that we're not, we're not getting onto alternative energy sources and systems quickly enough. We're not getting onto electric vehicles and, and, and so on quickly enough. Hydrogen is really at a, at a nascent stage as a commodity. The outlook for hydrogen over the next five to 10 years is extremely promising. There are massive projects under development. That is, that is very exciting, but you know, that, that, is, that, that major arrival of hydrogen on the market is, is five years away at least. And I think the problem is that there's a lot of concentration on energy supply at the moment. And you know, part of that is about supplying things like hydrogen, but part of it is, is about restricting the supply of fossil fuels. You know, trying to close down new developments of oil and gas fields. Um, there's not enough attention on the demand side of so giving people alternatives to, to fossil fuels and encouraging the, the uptake of, of low carbon technologies. So there's a lot of projects for producing hydrogen. There are not, not yet enough projects and support for, uh, for using hydrogen. And then obviously those two, those two things have to go together. Yeah, this give and take relationship you're describing is really interesting of we need to, while we're boosting the supply of hydrogen and creating a marketplace for that, also curtail the supply of alternatives in order to create demand. Is that is that a good way of putting it? Yeah, well, I mean, there is a big attention, I think, particularly from environmental groups and, and green political parties and so on, to say no new oil and gas developments and uh, no new financing of coal projects and, and so on. But I, I find that problematic, you know, because what that leads to ultimately is, is high energy prices and shortages, and people you know don't like that. And we we see a lot of political pressure in Europe at the moment because of how how high energy prices have gone. We've seen you know uh, Joe Biden's administration in in the US getting very concerned about high oil prices and trying to bring them down. Um, and you know uh, the risk is that this un- ultimately undercuts political support for the very necessary energy transition. So I, I, if there was more attention on developing the the demand for low carbon energy. Then we would have the 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 best of both worlds. We would have low carbon energy that would be cheap and affordable, and uh, and we would have reasonable and reliable energy too. And we would be replacing fossil fuels that way. And then there's no need for new developments of, of oil and gas fields and, and coal because uh, the alternatives would be superior. The International Renewable Energy Agency had a report out this week. That's Irena. They had a report saying that hydrogen will not be a replacement for fuel, but it's basically a whole new infrastructure, and it still has massive technical and geopolitical implications, which is something you were absolutely just pointing to. What's your take on these, this idea of the technical and geopolitical hurdles we still need to jump through? And are, is enough being done right now to prepare for this really massive transition? Yeah. So, you know, the use of hydrogen, it's, it's a super complex topic with, with, many, with many angles to it. And I think there's a lot of debate. It's still pretty unclear if we talk about the geopolitics of it, where it's going to lead us, right? So, you know, hydrogen to some extent would be replacing natural gas. Uh, to some extent, uh, hydrogen or fuels made from hydrogen would be replacing oil. By perhaps 2050, you would see a hydrogen business that is kind of comparable to, to today's natural gas business in, in size. And it would be being used in industry. It would be used in, to some extent in transport, possibly. 
and uh, to some extent in, in, in power generation. So it has a lot, lot of different applications. Hydrogen can be made in many places. It can be made in, in anywhere that has a good renewable energy resource. Um, so we're seeing a huge interest from Australia, from Chile in, in, in South America, from the Middle East and North Africa, Northwest Europe, we're seeing interest in Russia. So a lot of different countries could be producing it. Some of them are, are major hydrocarbon producers today, some of them are not. So it kind of diversifies the, the supply of those fuels uh, significantly. That's, I think, the, the point of Irina's report that how will this affect geopolitics? It'll, it'll provide a much more varied and diversified energy supply that's, that's not so much centered on a few major oil and gas exporters. Um, but they're right to point to, to the, the technical challenges. Perhaps it's fair to say that these are kind of more commercial challenges. I think there's a lot of technical solutions for using hydrogen today that are, you know, that, are, that do work. Um, but making them commercially viable and putting them in a, in a business model that, that, that the different players and that can actually make, make profitable, that, that is uh, particularly the challenge. Um, so, you know, creating the demand for, for low carbon hydrogen and its derivatives as a, as a fuel, you know, initially at least those will be more expensive than, uh, let's say, than, than oil or, or gas-based fuels. I also want to ask you about nuclear. Rolls-Royce is here displaying a small modular nuclear reactor, which it says can help industry to decarbonize production amid a rising demand for cleaner metals. Uh, Given regulatory requirements, and I think probably some construction constraints still, they don't expect to see this until early 2030s, likely be market ready. But this looks like a kind of exciting potential innovation. And I'm just wondering kind of from you, uh, just a pulse check on nuclear and are we, are we paying enough attention to it? And what are, what are some hopeful signs you're seeing in terms of this industry? Well, you know, I do remember discussing nuclear with Rolls-Royce uh, about five years ago or so, and, and they were indeed very excited about these small, so-called small modular reactors. Um, but, you know, they accepted that it would be a long road to get them into service. Uh, again, a lot of this, the, the technical solutions are, are known for these but the problem is getting through the regulations and, and the approval of the, these reactors. And, and there's a lot of interest in developing these, these projects, several companies in the US, Rolls-Royce, of course, in, in the UK, and there's other government, UK government support for them. You know, China and other countries have, have models as well. So the idea is, you know, basically the old traditional nuclear plants, they're very large. They take a very long time to build. Um, they, yes, they produce low carbon electricity uh, with a very low operating cost for, for a very long time. But just the, the, the risk to a developer of taking so long to build something with all the financing costs um, has, has made it very hard to develop new nuclear projects in Western countries, let's say. You know, China has been, has been a, uh, quite different and China has, has very much expanded its nuclear capacity. The UA, of course, has, has successfully built uh, nuclear power plants in, in a reasonable time as well. But the idea of these small modular reactors is they'll be quick. Uh, to build, they will be built in a factory. Each one is fairly small, so the financial exposure to the developer is uh, is in the hundreds of millions of dollars, not in the tens of billions of dollars. And these reactors could be deployed, as you say, for industry or in communities that don't have such a large electricity demand. They kind of they don't need a big reactor. A smaller one is more suitable. And it's about providing reliable, reasonably priced, and so-called dispatchable power. Right, power that can be turned on and off as as needed. That is the problem with a lot of renewable energy with wind and solar. They're great. They're very low cost. They're low carbon. But of course, you know, you need to have the right weather conditions for, the, for them to work. So, you know, there, there is the hope that a future energy system would include a balance of renewable energy along, along with nuclear power. Of course, some countries are very anti-nuclear and don't want it in their energy system or are trying to remove it. We'll have to see if it's the political winds change there. But there are some other countries that are that are very definitely very interested in nuclear power, if it can be made affordable and uh, and reasonably speedy to develop. 
And it's what makes this beat so interesting is the ongoing controversy. It's it's always interesting. Is there anything else you're keeping an eye out in terms of agreements or commitments this week? Just final thoughts on what else we should be watching out for. We've just touched on one controversial topic, which is nuclear. Another controversial one, at least in some places, carbon capture and storage. Uh, we've seen a lot of mention of that at the World Future Energy Summit. And, and, and I, I'm personally pleased to see that. So this is, again, is another very important low carbon technology for, for, for reducing emissions from, from the power sector, but, but particularly from industry. There's a lot of heavy industry that produces carbon dioxide, um, cement, cement industry, for example. It's pretty much unavoidable. So to avoid, to so prevent that contributing to global warming, we need to capture that carbon dioxide and, and either turn it into useful materials or, or lock it away underground. The UAE has, has one operating project, uh, which is, uh, has been very successful. We are seeing now a real rush of, of interest, finally, in the US and Europe, because finally carbon prices have got to the point where it, bec- it becomes attractive to, to do this rather than putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And, you know, economists and, and, and advocates for carbon capture have been saying for a couple of decades now that just put a price on carbon emissions and people will capture it. Uh, and, and I hope we're finally coming to that tipping point. Robin, you are a fount of information as always. Thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Thank you. For more from Robin Mills, please subscribe to his free weekly newsletter with the National Energy This Week. That was Robin Mills, CEO of Kumar Energy. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Thank you. That's it for today. All that remains to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. Please do join us again next time.